Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, so it is January 29th, uh, Sunday here. I am back, well, physically back on the Eastern time zone, mentally somewhere, I think, trapped in the Atlantic. But uh, how you been? What have we missed? We are back, baby. I missed you. It's good. This is, I mean, honestly, it's probably the longest you and I have gone without really talking in uh, in uh, years, really. Uh, you know, we... we communicated here and there but i'm excited to have you back i'm excited to hear how everything was why don't you just give me and the people a brief summary so for those of you who don't know ricky was back in the homeland he was in india the past three weeks almost uh for his second wedding and some good family time with uh family over there and his new wife's family so how was everything um, yeah, it was great. I, I mean, I guess I will say kudos to you. You did a better job of staying plugged in while you were in Japan than I did in India. Um, but the, yeah, we had a, we had a second wedding ish, which my parents assured me was going to be just sort of a relatively quiet, um, gathering of people ended up being like two days of events with like a close to a hundred to 150 people at each one. My mom, forced Ginny to get like three hours of makeup although she said it was going to be very light um but I'm maybe we'll throw up a picture or two on the uh on the on the Instagram because it's it it was definitely experience it was great to see a lot of um a lot of family that I you know I get to check in with every so often and I haven't really been able to to see it all since COVID I think I, I last went in January of 2019 thinking I would be back, you know, sometime in either 2020 or 2021. And here it is 2023. So it's been a while and it was really, really nice to see, um, see everyone, especially my grandmother who's getting my mom's mom was getting up there in age a little bit, but we also went to the Taj Mahal. I got a, a, maybe another good pick for the grand there. I really, I really enjoyed that trip. Second time I've been there, but I appreciated it a little bit more. I think the first time I was like either in high school or first year in college and I was kind of not happy to be there this time. Um, yeah, it was, it was very cool to soak it all in. Yeah. You guys don't post a ton of pictures, but everything that I saw looked great. And all that, the three hours worth of makeup for, for Jenny was, she, she looked phenomenal. The Taj Mahal looked awesome. I was jealous. So yeah, we'll, we'll throw a couple of those pictures up for people who are curious. Again, you can follow us if you don't already at a underscore gentleman's underscore disagreement on Instagram. But yeah, Ricky, it was funny. A couple of people when they were asking like, Oh, when's the next episode coming out? Like what's the next guest? And I was like, oh, we got a couple of weeks off here, a little bit of a hiatus. You know, my, my partner's over in India getting married again. People were like, you didn't get invited? And I was like, oh, no, no. It's just like a small little thing they're doing. You know, we did the real wedding here. And then I'm on Instagram, like looking at pictures. I'm like, this doesn't look like a small thing. <laughs> yeah, we had we had zero involvement in this one, like by design, because we were a little bit, you know, running on fumes. But we, well, by the time we got to the end of our, like the October wedding, um, and I think we just, by turning it completely over to my mom, she went a little bit, uh, 
just want a little hogwash. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and, and obviously like some things are just like the customs there are, are a bit different in terms of my, I met like 10 people from my mom's graduating class in medical school from, I don't know, like the 1970s or so. And so that was, that was interesting. And my dad too also had like a bunch of his college buddies come through. And and that's, that's always fun to see folks who probably wouldn't be able to make the guest list here just because, you know, numbers and expenses and things like that. Um, It's more customary over there. So it was, it was, it was different. I met a lot of people at my wedding. So. Yeah, yeah. No, that's actually really cool. Like for the family, just to be able to reconnect with some of their friends who probably knew you when you were just a, a kid, you know, and now to see like, you know, the fully matured version of, or I mean, maybe not fully matured, but we're getting there. <laughs> You're certainly getting there. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair. Yeah. I, I think that is the, like, the the number one question that I received was, do you remember me? And then it would be like, I last saw you when you were, you know, yay high. I'm doing the pint size thing. Right. I don't remember much. Well, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, you're back. We're excited to have you back. There's been obviously, as always, lots in the news. So what, what do we got going on? What are we talking about this week? Yeah, I'm I'm gonna give it a go and and giving and throwing out our agenda here this week. That's normally that's normally your gig, but what I was thinking about, kind of following our year end wrap up, is you know we end up at the end of the year we have like a lot of similarities in terms of what were the biggest stories, but we do have things maybe in different orders of importance, um, and then usually a couple different things. Um, and what I was thinking about is a lot of that is probably related to the news sources that we follow the most closely. And so as 2023 um, is, you know, the election year before the election year, and we'll start to see a lot of, um, you know, a lot of emerging stories about candidates and about uh, sort of the evolving political landscape and what's going to be important in 2024. I started to think back about some of like the like 2016, like Trump Clinton debates, even where obviously those devolved into something less than a less than an ideal debate. But one of the things I always found interesting is that the center of focus, like what each candidate was talking about, would would invariably be like talking past each other, right? Like in 2016, Trump was probably constant, like his biggest focus was like how China, uh, you know, was a, a bad trade partner. And if you, you know, looked at the Clinton campaign, that would probably not, cr- you know, crack the top five or the top 10 of most important topics. And so when you think about kind of these echo chambers of, the left and the right coming together to try and figure out, all right, like what are the problems that we need to solve? Oftentimes the thing that I'm thinking about is like, this is the greatest threat to our society, to our democracy, whatever is like top eight or nine on your list of 10 problems. And, and, you know, you and I may be closer together. So the idea for this would be not to think about the biggest actual stories of of the first month of 2023 but like what are some recurring themes that that some of the news outlets you follow are are pointing to and i you know it's not selfishly but like the reason that i thought of this is that i was tracking one particular story 
not intentionally, but like every time I opened the newspaper, another aspect of this story came up. And like the first half of me was like, this is a huge deal. This is crazy. All right. My, my Apple watch is trying to chime in here. This is a big deal. And then like by the fourth or fifth article on this, I was like, is this a big deal? Like do, do other people care about this? So anyways, that yeah. particular story I'm interested to share with you, but I, I got a couple others that I'm thinking about and curious, you know, what you've been thinking about over over the past month. Yeah. And so one love a rejuvenated Ricky back coming in with an agenda. This is for, <laughs> for those of you that are aware behind the scenes. This is maybe the first time in year three that this is happening, which we love. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, there has definitely been things that I have been reading about that I'm like, man, I, I, I miss talking to you about these things. So um, I'm excited to talk to you about it. We will try to limit ourselves and not drone on too much. This, As much as this is good for you and I to talk, uh, we'll, we'll limit ourselves a little bit, hopefully. Uh, but before we get into that, just a quick reminder, because it has been a few weeks, that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two eggs. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And Ricky, no pun for you this week. I actually looked up an Indian proverb uh, in, in you know tribute to your your trip to India. And so here it is, and you can, you can everyone can ponder this. Quote: In a tree that you can't climb, there are always a thousand fruits. Wow, interesting. Yes, and you know what? We'll take a little break and let people ponder that. When we come back, we'll get into the stories. So before we just quickly, quickly jump in here, you know, in our little break, you were saying that over the past couple of weeks, there have been some stories that have popped up and you're like, I, yeah, I wish we were uh, had uh, had a recording on schedule because I'd love to talk about this. And, you know, one of the things that I've just been enjoying about this podcast is that it does force me to think about stories that I might otherwise overlook, either because I'm not clicking on them or just you know, the way that the news outlets that I'm looking at are just not emphasizing them. Um, and in these past three weeks, when it's just been me, my own thoughts and whatever, whatever news that I'm perusing, like, it's very easy to quickly get into my own, like, echo chamber, like, ah, I could say this and Kelly would have nothing to, you know, to, <laughs> to refute me on. And so there, um, I think this kind of an exercise, I feel like is, it's interesting. And it for us, it's probably been a little bit less necessary because we've been able to keep each other honest or at least force each other to think about things over, you know, in, in shorter timescales than um, than you might otherwise, if you're not kind of forcing yourself to have conversations about things that you may not be looking at and forcing yourself to look into things that you may otherwise uh, pass over. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll start off. I'm I'm thinking that we can try and come up with like two or three stories a piece that uh, that have really sort of captured the the headline space um, in a way that maybe is not like across the board national headline news. So the first story, and really the like the genesis of this idea for me, um, was is George Santos. So the for like a little bit of backstory on George Santos, he's a newly uh, elected representative in the House. He's from New York. Um, and basically, since the start of the year, it's 
come out that every single thing on his resume has more or less been a lie. So, <laughs> and he continues like he doesn't. He even when it was like, oh, like you fabricate all these things, he like then does media appearances and just like keeps lying. It's, it's yeah. incredible. <laughs> no, it's, it's insane. Like from his from his job as like a Wall Street banker at I think like Goldman Sachs, which he never had to his mom who was apparently in the towers at nine and on nine on nine 11 when she was actually in Brazil. Like there's, I mean, the variety with which he's comfortable lying is, is, I mean, objectively impressive. And the fact that he kind of is just like, yeah, whatever. And then going on to the next thing. But the reason that I bring this up and it may be because my main source of news, um, just because I've subscribed to them now for probably 15 odd years is the New York times. And so there could be a little bit of, yeah, could be a little bit of a homerism there because he's a a New York representative, but I would say from January 12th to January 20th, there was an article in the times about George Santos, like if not every day, like every other day. And at first I was like, this is a huge deal. This is like a, you know, a signaling of the, crumbling of republican principles they don't care about anything anymore if they're going to let this guy like get through on the fact that he's lying about everything and then by like the sixth or seventh article i was like are we still talking about it's like what's going on like is this actually merit the kind of attention that was getting so i'm curious like obviously you know based on your reaction you're aware of the situation but is this a story that's been tracking really well in uh, in kind of I mean you you know you're a, you're admittedly more in in the objective news category than the than the hard right but I'm yeah curious where where this guy falls um, on your radar for news this past month. Well, it's certainly like a fascinating story. I mean. Like it's it's been like almost fun and funny to follow in a lot of ways because it's just like the the brazenness is incredible. I think if you if you dig more deeply, as I imagine the Times is, and especially I mean this is obviously happening. Santos is a congressman elect from New York, so the Times not only is this a national story for them, but it's a local story for them too. And so I think if if you dig more deeply, it, it becomes it can become more concerning in a lot of ways. On the other hand, it's one congressman out of 435. This guy is, if he is able to remain in Congress at all, is is not going to have any power. Like I can't imagine any situation, which is he is reelected in two years. So like, is it an important story to me? No. Again, I think it is like every, I feel like every day, maybe to your point of like, this is being covered in like Politico, they have like a running section called The Talented Mr. Santos, which is a play on the movie The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is a phenomenal Matt Damon, Jude Law movie from like the late 90s. Really terrific movie. Uh, but Philip Seymour Hoffman, there's like a bunch of people in that movie like before they become like super famous uh, about just like that. It, it just never stops. Like there's just more and more things that keep coming out. Like that he claimed that he was like, he was like won a volleyball national championship at a college. Like he didn't even go to the college, let alone like play volleyball or what? like, it's just like incredible stuff. Uh, like, uh, and so in that sense, like, yeah, I've been following it, but no, I don't think it's like a super serious story in a lot of ways. Okay. So 
I I think what's been interesting about the coverage is that like beyond the factual coverage around like he said this and this is how we know it's a lie and he said this and this is how we know it's a lie. I think a lot of the coverage that I was reading are both on how George Santos is emblematic of specific problems in like American society. Like there was an expose on just like, it's how he dresses that allowed him to sort of, you know, skirt any vetting because he wears this, like the, like the sweater on top of a collared shirt on with, on with a blazer over it. And you just automatically assume that a guy who dresses like that definitely worked on wall street. <laughs> that That's like, that was like one aspect of it. But then the other aspect of it is like, this is actually just a broader indication of like the existential crisis within the Republican party that nobody there feels i mean nobody at the congressional level like speaker mccarthy gave him like committee assignments right like it wasn't a full on censure like you dude you're making a mockery of our party and of congress in general um that like the fact that he's not really being held to account you know he's got some calls for to to step down uh from amongst new york republicans but not at really at the national level certainly mccarthy's not saying anything about it really um that like this is a huge deal in terms of just a further evidence that the republican party has abandoned all principles and they no longer care about any of the things that they purported to care about right like rule of law fairness meritocracy all those things that are that should be high and mighty republican ideals when you have someone who flouts all of them all at once and then you're like, well, you know, whatever we need him. So <laughs> I, th- I, th- I, yeah, I think that that's an interesting um, dynamic in, insofar as if we think about what is a big deal and what is not, I, I think I like toe the line in between the two reactions that like, it's a hilarious story. <laughs> Absolutely insane. And the fact that he's just still around. Like, I feel like if I got caught after one of those lives, I'd be like sheepishly, let me get under a, right. know, under a rock and never come out again. But yeah, at 10 or 20. Oh, yeah. Far more than that. But yeah, I think to your original point, it does, it does make a mockery of the entire process. You know what I mean? Like I said, only one of 435 to like almost minimize like his power, but it's one of 435. Like this is like, it would, Ricky. If I wanted to run for Congress, it would be like near impossible for me to get elected to Congress. Like it's, it's like this really prestigious job that people spend in some cases their whole lives looking to get there, and then can't in some cases, even though they're super qualified with like real resumes of doing real work. You know, and it's like in that sense, like it's you look around like this is just ridiculous. How does someone like this get elected? And so I guess like that's more what I was focusing on. If we're tar- talking about like what is the Santos episode reveal about deeper flaws in American society. And I think this it's fair to take a hard look at Republicans and how they've handled it. But I think it more, it's like, was there just no vetting done by anybody? Like, it, it actually seems like more of an indictment on, like, voters, on, like, the media, on Republicans for allowing this guy to run, on Democrats for not realizing that any of this stuff was false. You know what I mean? Like, this was a, this was a competitive election and no one, none of those people I just mentioned were able to unearth this before election day. Like that's actually a little bit more concerning to me than, you know, what it says about Republicans. And I will say that I think this is 
a little bit of an indictment. Like th that last point that you said is that like, there's no shame, right? It's like that I do think is a real difference. And again, maybe this is one of those, you know, things were different back in the day, but they actually weren't. I don't, I guess I don't know enough about this, but it just seems like there, it just seems like there's just such a lack of shame. And I will say that's, that's been driven by Trumpism, which is largely a Republican thing. But I do think you see it on both sides now where people have kind of come out and been like, no matter what they're caught doing, they can just like attack the media and attack the other party and just being like, they're out to get us, right? It's like these Republican crazy MAGA ultimate people like that are extremists that are out trying to smear my good name. And then Republicans were like, you know, it's the, it's the socialists from the, the media that's, that's out there to get us. Right. And so then they like rally their base and they can stay in. And then eventually people just get sick of the story. And so like, then they're just like still in power. You know? And like, and, and to like Cuomo did this to like a lesser extent, when like all that, all the controversy came out, he was pretty much just like denied all the stuff and was like, it's the people out there attacking me to get it. So I think that to me, the story is indicative of like larger societal issues, not necessarily like how he dresses, but just like the, the shamelessness from some of our politicians, I think, is is embarrassing. Yeah. And and I think that that is that is probably the right takeaway in that, like, this may be egregious, but it's no it's not it's not really as much of an outlier if we think about it in some ways like it's this one is almost more funny like obviously like the Cuomo stuff was was very serious in terms of the people that he like hurt you know from a from a mental anguish and 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 whatnot standpoint like that in some ways is more serious of a uh so yeah yeah an instance of somebody not telling the truth and, and really being hurtful in that way all right well we may put a pin in this one but um uh, yeah. Anyways, I enjoyed that discussion. What do you What do you got for me? Comes back. Comes back off video. It's pretty. I got to talk about short sets. Oh, that's funny. It's a funny story. All right. So this is the story for me where I I really missed you was the the drama over the election of Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker, and this was happening like right as as you were leaving, and but it didn't conclude until after, and it was just again, this is like it's partial in some ways, and like kind of funny to like sit back and laugh at the you know general incompetence and uh, kind of circus that that seemed to be happening because so this is now a few weeks old at this point but um kevin mccarthy was elected the house speaker on the 15th ballot it was the longest speaker election in 164 years it was huge drama like literally the scenes of republicans like yelling at each other and drinking on the floor and in some cases almost like physically coming to blows on things and like the unlikely allies and you have santos who's sitting by himself and marjorie taylor green who's now become like mccarthy's right hand woman like this is like it was just like scenes to laugh at and then you're like well this is actually the people that are leading like one of our houses of congress this is super embarrassing but ricky that's not i mean i think we can probably all agree on like the overall optics of the situation but what i really was curious about is i read this as this was happening i read this excerpt that back in november three of the people that were like holdouts on the mccarthy vote were um uh, Matt Gates from Florida, Andy Biggs from Arizona, and Victoria Sparts from Indiana. And it came out that back in November, the three of them attended a forum, like an intellectual, like kind of political conversation. 
in which advocates and activists urged the House Freedom Caucus, which is like the far right caucus. And then there are a bunch of like smaller groups within the larger Republican Democratic caucuses. They urged the House Freedom Caucus to essentially act like a European style third party. And they were saying that the activists and the advocates were advocating that the Freedom Caucus almost like shoot to co-govern with the traditional Republican caucus and that to demand um, split spots on um, panels and committees and leadership uh, provisions and positions and rule provisions and to to just like more act like this European style, which Ricky, you've referenced a bunch of times, which is often like a coalition of smaller parties that have to like come together to govern. And so what it led to, and once McCarthy, McCarthy folded in order to get like his speakers and gave it like to a long, long list of um, far right demands. But this is what the House Freedom Caucus activists wanted. Like they wanted to be like, hey, these are the things that are important to our members and our uh, grassroots activists. And so go get them. And like, we're in a position of power because the Republicans have such a narrow majority to do that. Ricky, one of the things is one of the most important powerful committees in the house is called the house rules committee. And they, they shape like pretty much what comes to the floor, what amendments are offered, like some, so you don't really get any bills to the floor without going through the house rules committee. There's 13 people on the committee. It's nine in the majority and four in the, um, you know, opposition party. So because Republicans control Congress, like the, the House right now, it would be nine Republicans, four Democrats, and you need at least nine votes to get anything to the floor. Normally, McCarthy would put like nine loyalists right in there. And so anything that McCarthy wanted to get to the floor, they could get to the floor. But one of the concessions he made was to give three of those spots to House Freedom Caucus members. So essentially, you have like six kind of, I guess, traditional Republicans, or at least McCarthy Republicans, you have four Democrats, and then you have three House Freedom Caucus members. So in order to get anything to the floor, McCarthy is going to either have to, you know, get agreement with the House Freedom Caucus, or get some agreement with the Democrats that are on the panel. And it's just actually like, like I was, I was very against the Freedom Caucus people, because in a lot of ways, I think some of them are like, pretty out there. Uh, but when it came down in like a lot of the things they were asking for, I didn't necessarily like, but when I like stepped back and kind of viewed it like holistically, kind of intrigued that I saw, that's why I really, I was like, I really want to, what, what would Ricky think about something like this? Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very interesting tactic. Definitely not one that I was that tuned in to. Like I knew that they were that they were the holdouts and they had the list of demands in order uh, to get McCarthy as House Speaker. And, you know, classic McCarthy just doesn't give a shit about anything but a role like being the House Speaker. So, you know, I, I, I don't I think it was always a foregone conclusion when push came to shove, he would make those concessions. I think <clears throat> one thing is interesting that like there continued to be that there is no dialogue between moderates in both parties saying like, Hey, we're going to go out and get these votes. We can either get them from these guys who have this list of demands, or we can get them from you. And we like, at the end of the day, we are the party in the majority. Like that is like a factual by the numbers thing. There's, there's no way to change that, but you have some, you could have some say in terms of who is, who is, and who isn't, elected. Now, obviously, that's just not how we operate. But the well, yeah, it, it just isn't how we operate. So I, I, I think that that is 
probably one sort of sad element in that like as much as the house freedom caucus saw an opportunity with the slim majority that they could kind of the way mansion has like flexed muscle in the senate in the past right just like you need us so let me tell you what my list of demands are um that rather than find then rather than say rather than play ball with like the extremist wing that we can actually go after hey here are like 10 centrist democrats who would rather mccarthy without the you know the nut jobs then then you know that's a better outcome for us than than what we're than where we are which is uh the speakership under control not not control right it is still like a small but like they have they have this very key piece of leverage and like you say in terms of what comes to the house floor like that's a huge thing insofar as they can horse trade like you want to bring this to the floor sure you, we you're also going to bring this to the floor and that's like a that's a very powerful position to be in i think the 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 role of the speaker of the house has not been explored as much in terms of how important it is to the legislative agenda of congress and it's it's obviously it's a it's a massive role um in terms of using this like european style of governing coalitions yeah i do think that this is very interesting because in the past it has basically been yeah to a to a two-party system and now is an opportunity to put more emphasis into these specific caucuses i think you saw some of that with how many progressives were handling things um in sort of in the run-up to this situation um and a little bit more hard line in terms of the election of the speaker of the house but pelosi went through similar not quite not quite outright challenges but people being ups, not upset but saying that like well she doesn't really do what we what we think the american people are electing us to do here so you know oh uh, yeah anyways i a little bit of a diatribe there but uh, well i think it's just it, it's an interesting opportunity where especially if it stays this close right the progressive caucus didn't have a ton of power because one nancy pelosi is was a far more powerful speaker than kevin mccarthy is and the democrats had a larger majority so pelosi could uh, like you know um aoc or Ayanna presley could vote no and she'd be like okay like go make your statement like i still have the votes where like mccarthy just can't he can't afford that but i do think it, it would be interesting like <clears throat> If the Democrats swing back in two years, like Pelosi's not going to be in charge, right? So it's Jeffries, who it seems to be widely respected, but doesn't have the experience like corralling a caucus in the same way that Pelosi did. Like if you were, um, and you can probably help me with her name, Pramila Jayapal, um, who's the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, like I would look over there and be like, why can't I get some of these demands? And I, I think in some ways, Ricky, like, I don't love it because it becomes people on the far right and far left. Like, I don't love that it's you know, the the AOCs of the world and like the the Matt Gates of the world that are like, <laughs> and not that they're equivalent, but like just maybe ideologically they might be uh, of just like setting the agenda. But then I think you have to look at, there's like a, um, a moderate like Blue Dogs caucus who are in, in the Democrat, in the for House Democrats or like called, it's the problem solvers caucus in the house republicans like people who are moderates like they should be looking at this as opportunities too of like well why can't we band together and be like well you're not getting anything on you know 
you're not getting that support on X, Y, or Z unless we get these type of things. And then I do think, yeah, that maybe they're the under the umbrellas of Republicans and Democrats, but it's it's the start of something where there's you really have to negotiate with people, and it's not just the majority ramming down their priorities and like with a four vote you know majority down the throats of the the party in opposition. So I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting development. Yeah, I mean, I as one final thought on this is that if you do have a little bit more like bifurcation of the parties within themselves, then you may start to see more cross aisle collaboration because there are certain things like even if we go like far right and far left, like in terms of uh, economic policy or or trade, for instance, there are similarities in, in how we deal with those things. And then you can get into whatever more social policy things where perhaps more moderates on both sides of the aisle actually have more in common than they do different like it, it, it's almost it could go one of two ways right it's like you the this side could actually create some more horse trading between parties or it could just be like all right well we have leverage on you for this yeah. you want this so we get that and then we now are like just sticking in all kinds of random crap into bills that are you know, I ha- I had to include this in order to get this thing passed, and they had to include this thing for me in order to get it passed. But it's not really the ideal outcome because we never really talked. It was just like a, you know, a perfunctory like this is how we have to govern now. Um, which, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, it seems like it could it could really go either ways. But it, either way, but it is an interesting opportunity. Just one last thing that you brought up on that point where when the one of the demands of the House Freedom Caucus was to reduce to um, defense spending to, to take it back to several years ago, which would be like a for dollar for dollar, like a, a decrease in how much we're spending on on defense. And it was funny to see like some of the progressives, like the far left progressives I was just mentioning, kind of like looking around being like, we we totally agree with that. You know I mean? like, but, so again, Rick, maybe it's it's too optimistic to think that you would get that cross aisle things. But like, if you have enough people in both parties, like being like, this is an issue that we can get behind. Not a bad thing for governing. Yeah, definitely. And for the country in general to start to stop. Well, I think there are certain people who get you know reputation as villainous who more more or less deserve them. But I think to start to think about what are the policy initiatives that we're pushing forward and who, irrespective of who is the one pushing them forward, can I get behind the policy or not? Absolutely. All right. Uh, When we come back, let's talk some other stories that have caught our eye over the past few weeks. All right. So this next major headline um, is obvious is, is going to be a more somber one, certainly one that you have heard of, um, but it is in some ways, yeah, regurgitation sounds very callous, but a, a resurfacing of a common theme uh, in in the gun violence conversation. So obviously in over the past month, um, particularly in California, there have been two mass shootings, um, one in Half Moon Bay and the other in Monterey Park both involving sort of the Asian communities there, Asian and Asian American communities there. The, But then, you know, following from that, uh, the 
the headlines of like there have been more mass shootings than days in the year so far. So mass shooting as defined as four or more people being injured or killed. I think the uh, National Gun Violence Archive has it, and that's a nonprofit that tracks these things, has it at like 48 through 29 days of the year. Um, And again, you know, Biden tweeting out, like waiting for that assault weapons ban on my desk or something. Um, So they're, yeah, I, 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 and I think this one is less of like a news in terms of like a direct news story, but things that like a lot of friends of mine who I follow on social media have been reposting about, and and, and rightly so. Obviously, another collection of like horrific incidents, and and those two in California are really only in the last fifteen days. There were there was another one in Utah earlier this year, and obviously the same you know, this is the only country where that happens. How do we solve this? I'm curious. Yeah. uh, On, on your side, obviously like when the mass shooting happens, it's a big deal, but then there is like the sort of the residual coverage of this mass shooting in the context of America in the context of gun access in the context of um, all sorts of different things. So wondering, yeah, where, where this sort of falls in terms of major headlines for you um, for the past couple of weeks. Yeah, we've had this conversation, unfortunately, far too often over the last couple of years. I, I It's wrong to say like what was interesting about these shootings, but like what was, it was that they were different. I think, you know, more often than not, it seems like you have young white men who are committing these mass shootings. And I know that is not, uh, that's not the case in every mass shooting, but it, again, it seems more often than not that that's what's happening. And I think there are conversations that need to be had around that group of people uh, in particular. And that doesn't mean that those conversations need to stop happening, but for the specific two incidents you're referencing, you have two really old Asian men that are perpetrating these killings. And again, that they're happening in California, which has relatively strict uh, laws around the access to guns there. I I do think it, it makes it it almost more complicated because like when you think it's, Oh, if you look at it, it's a lot of 18 to 20 year olds that are doing these sorts of things. Okay. Well, we can maybe raise the, the age limit. Like there are specific things that we can do around raising the age limit to certain types of weapons. Or if, if we're looking at it, so it's a lot of like white men, like, do we need to really look at like the mental health of like, you know, teenage, teenage you know, kids, you know, coming up in, in today's society, like th- those sorts of things, I think are, are maybe real solutions when you're looking to do more than like thoughts and prayers. And I think when you have 67, 70 year old Asian men killing members of their own community, it, that's, it, it feels almost like more hopeless in some ways. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that it, it, it changed a ton for me. I, I know that that's not a, that's not a great response, but that's that's my that's that's what I have yeah I mean I I I think that that is kind of a like in terms of is this particular incident moving the needle any more so than Uvalde or you know Newtown did 10 years ago right like clearly not um and yet it yeah I mean I, I think one of the things that was interesting is like so this gun violence archive is is 
is counting up to 48 of these mass shooting events. I I could name two, maybe three of them, meaning that another 40 plus go relatively unnoticed. And I was thinking about like, well, and obviously these are on the more horrific end of the scale, which is all horrific, but like why, yeah. And, and I think, you know, there was an element of when it first came out because they were specifically in Asian communities, but we didn't know enough about the shooter. Like it would be hard for me not to be suspect that like a lot of these would gain traction because of the recent events um, around Asian hate and the, you know, the beatings in, in New York City subways or uh, some of the other stuff that, that had been going on in California following the, uh, you know, following the COVID lockdowns, right? So to me, I think what was scary, not scary, but like that, like the news outlets were specifically honing in on these stories because they were impacting a community that has sort of become a liberal cause du jour if and and again like that that is probably callous and i think there are i mean obviously the story it merits covering um but i think it's also fair to ask like why these stories and and maybe not some of the other ones and do they sort of reinforce the narrative until they don't right like they this is very clearly an example of Asian hate until it's a member of the, of, of the Asian community. And then, um, and then it's like a different question. I think, you know, part of the genesis of this conversation for, or uh, of this specific conversation for me is like, what are the, the narratives that get the most traction and the ones that reinforce our understanding of the world and how do our news publications often look for that because that makes a not a jazzy it's a horrible word for this but like that makes a more more gripping or enticing headline like we want to confirm that our understanding of the way things are is the correct understanding and so if i'm looking to my news outlets to i i'm looking for them to tell me i'm right not to tell me that i'm wrong um and that was sort of my first reaction not my first reaction sort of like the the fallout reaction like when i when i had a chance to start to think about all right there are like these things are happening every day that is a horrible situation it's a problem that as a society as a country we're really not effectively dealing with but like why these stories similarly like when you have a kidnapping of a white woman somewhere and and it grabs the national headline like what is it about these particular stories that the that the media writ large is like this is going to be worthy of the headline not the not the four-person drive-by in south side of chicago yeah i think that's a a fair take and we we talked about that briefly when we when we had uh joan vanaki on and we were talking about like how crime like republicans trying to make crime a big issue and she was like yeah i mean it seems like pretty uh, I don't know, like, oh, like scare tactics for Democrats. But like, if you live in some of these cities and, and Boston, unfortunately, included in these last few months, but Boston, Chicago, New York, Baltimore, and many more, like, this is like an everyday reality for you. And this is the stuff that never gets headlines. And I think that's a fair point. And so I, I think like anytime these things happen, 
you hope that we at least have the discussions at this level, if not at hopefully higher level, people have these discussions, but I can actually do things at higher levels. And I think you, you have to examine everything, right? You got to examine the root causes of like, why does it happen so often in inner cities, right? Are we not doing a good enough job with our education systems or our criminal justice systems or, um, you know, our healthcare, our housing, or like the, like the kind of the root causes. And then when it happens in other communities, like what, what can we do more? And I think it would be irresponsible not to continue to have those conversations about access to guns and, and gun laws, because like that is an element. It might not, we might not agree about if it's element one or element seven, but it's an element. And so we should have those conversations. Um, I didn't know you were going here, but there were two, two other, like, let's do, this will be the somber segment, but two other things that we should at least discuss that have been in the headlines. The, the, the murder of, of Tyree Nichols, um, the video in, in Memphis, um, which just came out on Friday. Uh, I wouldn't encourage anyone to watch the, the video. It's certainly disturbing and traumatic, but the Memphis police re- released body cam uh, video uh, of Police beating Tyree Nichols, who was a 29-year-old uh, father, uh, son, worker, skateboarder, photographer. Like it seemed to, by you know, it doesn't make it any better. But he seemed to be just like a, a normal guy who was living a very good, normal life, uh, and was beaten uh, by the by Memphis police officers, and then subsequently died three days later. That um, body cam footage was just released on Friday and sparked protests across the country, understandably. So just another horrible incident. Um, I will say, Ricky, like to your point about like media confirming or not confirming our bias, like how much it's covered, like the five officers that were involved were all black. I think it certainly would have been there were the headlines would have been different, understandably so, if that was not the case. And so I think it's, you know, just to be fair on both sides, it's important to point that out. I will say that aside from the absolute senseless tragedy of him of his murder since then immediately all five police officers were fired they were indicted for second degree murder several days later and they just yesterday disbanded the entire unit that these officers were working on and so again it is not worth his life for those things to happen but like we had said in in the wake of like the, the george floyd murder like you hope that we're getting better about getting things right after. And to that point, like the fact that we even had body cam footage to see this, you know, like I just can't imagine like how often this stuff happened and how much as bad or worse that it was before we had access to to body cam footage. Yeah. it. Uh, I, I mean, I think this is another one of those stories that, that really um, obviously kind of will, will, grip the headlines across the board for its horrific nature thinking back to like a Rodney King type of thing with the uh, with the original footage but as as you as you noted and rightly so that all of the indicted police officers are black in this case um, and the victim also obviously being black just continuing to challenge I mean I think right now what we're what what I see a lot of is that like it's the institution of policing that is racist, yep. not the police officer. Well, the police officers race, like notwithstanding, I like, I think about, um, yeah, that sort of presumption of guilt in a lot of these communities. <clears throat> and certainly 
can't pretend to understand like what it's like. I mean, the I think this unit's like specific job was to was to basically roll around like some of Memphis's most dangerous neighborhoods. And so like walking out the door with that mentality is unfortunately like somebody's going to get hurt sort of thing. And that doesn't change the fact that they are, that they are, that they were, you know, potentially putting their own lives on the line. Um, And of course these types of things are, emblematic of like larger problems in terms of how we seek to like deal with issues of of violence and violence in in these neighborhoods i think that was um but i yeah i think i'll be interested to see how this case progresses because on the one hand i think it's pretty obvious like what the outcome should be uh from the from like a judicial standpoint. But I also think like these group of police officers are not going to get the, uh, the outpouring of support that your friend, that like the guys in Minnesota did, or even in Louisville and Kentucky, right? Like we, we know how that works as well. And so that is, you know, almost it, and it's just like you, you, I, I mean, I only watched like a five second clip. I had to shut it off basically because it was making me sick. But like, based on that, I would feel like I have no problem being like, yeah, throw them in jail, lock them up, throw away the key, whatever. But it's almost like they're also caught up in, in, in part of this system that clearly by dealing with individuals and individual cases, we're not improving the system. Not to say that they don't need to be held accountable, but if it ends there, if it ends with their accountability, then I don't know. <clears throat> I'm not necessarily sure what, what that does, how that, how that moves us forward. And that's probably like the opposite of what I said before, like when we were talking about, well, like, because in the past it had been zero accountability, but now, and then, you know, and you were talking too about like body cam footage and being able to show us things that we'd never seen before. But the increase in body cams hasn't led to like a decrease in police related killings. And so it's like, a, all right, we needed it. Now we have the obvious, most objective proof of what's going on. But now what? Sure. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. Sorry. But. No, that, I think that that's all fair, um, and it's, I think it circles back to the same conversation like we've had with the gun stuff. Like we we did pass some like gun reform last year. Clearly, it's, it's not enough. But like we, I, I don't know, whatever. I, I'm gonna cut it there. The last thing I'll say is that um, there have been several to take it abroad. There have been several um, shootings in Israel uh, over the the past week or so of people in this allegedly in reaction to some um, moves that the Israeli government has been making in the West Bank, which has which has led to deaths of Palestinians. But there have been like several shootings in Israel of, of people who are worshipping, who are at, at temple or out in the streets, um, who, who have been shot and killed too. So we talked about this with Jeffrey Robbins about and we, I asked him, you know, I was like, well, what, what can we do about it? And he's like, you got to talk about it, right? I think, and that's the same thing with Tyree Nichols or with the shootings in California. It's it's unfortunately far too easy to just 
to not talk about these things because they become routine and they're not enough fun to talk about. So I, I, I would be remiss in not bringing up both those examples of, of stuff that we have talked about and need to continue to, to bring attention to if they continue to happen. Yeah. I mean, I think the situation in Israel is going to require um, another revisit slash deeper dive um, because it seems like it's heading in a particularly bad direction in this particular moment. But I know you had one uh, one or two other stories, so uh, I'll let you have Adam. All right. Yeah. A little transition out of that somber segment there, but two things Ricky you can talk about either of them and we'll probably talk about uh, at least one of them in more depth soon but the the United States hit its debt ceiling last week so we have a I believe it's 31.6 trillion dollar debt ceiling and there are ways to get around it for a few months and so Janet Yellen said that she was going to take quote extraordinary measures to keep the United States fulfilling its obligations but Come X date, we believe it's probably going to be early June. She will no longer be able to take these extraordinary and they're like very technical measures. And the United States will hit its self-imposed debt ceiling, which means it will no longer be able to borrow any more money to pay its obligations, which it has already committed to paying. And this would be, you know, maybe this is a longer episode, This, but briefly, this would be just an absolute global financial disaster uh, and and we could literally litigate all the ways but that's that's the headline and then the sub headline is biden in the white house repeatedly saying we're not not going to negotiate and mccarthy and republicans being like well we're not raising the debt ceiling so all right that's where we are five months out from potential default on our obligations yeah i mean this is unfortunately like a recurring theme of somewhere around like the last decade of waiting till like, I don't expect the resolution on this until like May 31st or whatever, June, whenever, (laughs) whenever the government is supposedly going to grind to a halt. Um, Yeah. It's, it's definitely a story that, that every time we approach the debt ceiling and we have to renegotiate in order to raise it. I mean, 31 trillion is a huge, huge number. And yet in the context of like the previous huge numbers, is it that much more huge? I don't know. Um, yeah. I like, I, I think it, it will, from my perspective, be interesting to see like where those spending cuts need to come from um and i i yeah like maybe this republican party this the the like the the as we sort of talked about the hold that that some of the more far-right republicans have over the republican party is enough to just say that like no this time means no and we're gonna see we're just gonna see what happens when we don't pay our debts or whatever um (laughs) like to me it's not a a game of chicken that the more moderate white house really wants to play with uh with that side of the republican party and yet it's almost still feels like a non-story because of because it has it's like how many times can you can you cry wolf at this point 
Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I, I want to point out a couple of differences. So Ricky's talking about this. We nearly defaulted in 2011 and 2013 under kind of similar circumstances with a Democratic president and a Republican House. And both times we, you know, the 11th hour deal, people came came back to the table and, and got it gotten enough to get the deal done but the u.s was downgraded for the first time like the standard and poor like downgraded u.s credit for the first time ever it was like a sterling like triple a credit and again that might not mean much to people but it, it impacts the ability of the u.s to borrow money and it costs more now to borrow money which again like the cyclical thing makes the, the debt worse because it's now costing us more to pay for an unbalanced budget which we pass every year so <laughs> So, like, it was a problem, but I will say differences is that the Obama White House was willing to negotiate. That's one. Two, Republicans had come in after 2010 with a pretty clear mandate from people, it seemed like, to rein in spending. So they they at least, like, they seemed to have at least some backing. And John Boehner was speaker, whatever you want to say about Boehner, like, he was an experienced politician that could, like, wrangle votes when necessary. So you had... Just a different dynamic where now you have a White House saying, I'm not going to negotiate. And the Republicans in that case, because they had an alleged mandate, which I think they did, had like a very clear list of demands of like, this is what we're going to need in order to raise the debt ceiling. And Obama, the Obama White House, to their credit and to the, the House Republicans' credit, eventually came together. And like, there were concessions made on both sides. They did raise the debt limit in exchange for some like financial measures. Unfortunately, those financial measures have largely been just disregarded over the last decade, including three times during the Trump administration when the House voted to raise the debt ceiling limit with no financial concessions about spending. So like the the seasonal deficit hawks are back, of course, because Biden's in charge now. But the House Republicans are just like a little bit in disarray. Like there's no mandate and there's not it's not even really clear what they want. And I think like to quote like what is it, the Dark Knight, where it's like some people just like to watch the world burn. Like I'm I'm a little scared there's like a few too many of those people in the caucus right now. So again, this is this is something where it's not gonna impact anybody's lives until all of a sudden it's impacting like everybody's life. Yeah. And it's weird. Almost to their credit, though, that may be, and and you're sort of right to talk about the, <clears throat> the go, uh, U.S. government, so, or sort of our national credit rating having major implications for markets. It reminds me similarly of like discussions around Brexit when a lot of people were saying, you know, if if the U.K. pulls out, it's going to be like terrible for uh, the terrible for like the stock market and for our prospects here and i think you know to the to the far right their who their core constituency is like good fuck it i'm not in the market yeah. so it doesn't matter yeah. and i think that was a similar reaction during brexit and i think yeah i mean in some in some way maybe that is the like that is kind of an opinion that hadn't hasn't had its due in that like yeah the market not doing well is not good for a lot of people but there are a lot of people who have not done well because they have nothing invested in the market and they have not no tie to the market um and that like those considerations haven't been huge now whether or not lowering you know not increasing the debt ceiling is going to meaningfully benefit them in any other way 
I would probably say no. But to a certain degree, like, I think so many decisions are made with regard to how it's going to impact the market without regard for the fact that the market only impacts, I don't know, probably like 50% or less of the population directly in terms of like their holdings in the market. Sure. All right. Well, we'll we'll obviously keep tabs on that and maybe do a deeper dive into the politics and financial economic implications of it um, down the road. But last thing, Ricky, and this is some little red meat for you, is I... Just this past week, the United States agreed to send tanks over to Ukraine, which was a little bit of a line that the Biden administration had been like, well, we're not going to cross. Like, well, we're happy to give them missile defense systems and maybe some some smaller artillery, but we're not going to send tanks, which Ukraine has been asking for for a long time at this point. But as the war in Ukraine approaches a year, the United States agreed to send tanks, 31 of them. Um, the M1 Abrams tanks. And in conjunction with that, Germany is going to send their Leopold tanks. And also they agree, Germany has this thing when they sell their tanks to other people that those other countries can't then send tanks to a different country without German approval. So essentially a bunch of other countries like Poland and Norway and Spain had been like, well, we want to send our tanks, our German tanks to Ukraine, but we can't yet now that they can. So Ukraine, big victory for them in terms of like getting what they asked for. So now they are going to, they'll get the German Leopold tanks from Germany. They'll get the Leopold tanks from a bunch of those other countries I just named. They'll get the Abrams tanks from the United States. So, um, yeah, if you're, yeah, that's, it was a big thing. It really, this was in negotiations for months. It didn't, this seemed like almost, I'm going to say red line a million times in the next two minutes, but like that was the red line that the Biden administration was like, well, we're not going to send tanks because that would be a, you know, one step too far. Now they have. Yeah. Uh, no, sorry. I was smiling because I think they're the leopard, leopard two tanks, not Leopold. <laughs> <laughs> what a what a classic uh, German thing to make. Uh, that's people won't even get like why that's a natural mistake for me to make. All right. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I I mean I think you're right to bring this up. I I I was almost going to bring this up in the in the other direction in that I think this is a huge huge deal that that like almost feels like wonkish in its nature and that like it's it's not quite a footnote obviously when it happened it, w- it was a headline but people are right to have questions around like all right well what's what's the ac- actual implication and i think it's it's huge because there is absolutely and and there's no way that somebody in russia is not looking at this and saying that the us is directly involving itself in this conflict in a way that air defense systems, you know, trying to shoot drones out of the sky or trying to shoot incoming missiles out of the sky are very, very different from a tank, which of course you can say that it's for defensive maneuvers, but it's, it's largely, you know, it's just a war machine that will be killing Russian troops. And so that makes it a very different set of, of, of ammunition that, in like the literal sense, but also in the figurative sense in terms of what Moscow can do in, in retaliation is probably not the right word, but like we talked about sort of backing them into a corner um, into a way that, that like, it's, it's not, it's not, 
Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, as, as you know, we've had these discussions a lot and it's very tricky to talk about this subject because uh, of course the sort of death and destruction that is being wrought on Ukraine there, like there's no way to talk around that. And yet I think it's still important to like try and consider some of the historical implications. Like what would we have done in Iraq had Russia been rolling tanks um, on behalf of, of the Iraqi, whatever the national guard or army or whatever they are, right? Like that, there's no way that we would have been like, Oh yeah, totally fair. Like I understand why you're doing that. That is the, and then, and then I, I have to think about like, what is the end game here? There are a lot of people talking about like, well, yeah, like tactically, this is going to make it a lot more plausible for Ukraine to recapture some of the territory that was taken from them. There's like no, no, if, you know, there's nothing to dispute that, but it's such a, like a minute goal because at the end of the day, I don't think you have a situation in which Russia is going to like surrender. And so what does that mean? Because they are a nuclear armed nation and they do have, uh, you know, effectively a dictator at the helm who is 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 looking at these moves and and trying to contemplate his next one and i and i worry about that definitely it's uh it's very i i think like i think the biden administration was right to agonize over this and i'm a little bit worried about who is now kind of pushing these types of procedures because it's like a it doesn't feel like it's going to help bring the conflict to a close which is like what we what needs to happen first and foremost. Yeah. I think that's what you think needs to happen. Right. I think if like, if Zelensky is, is not trying to bring it to a close period, I think he's trying to get Russia like out of, so I mean, I think, I think there are different goals here and um, you know, it, it is interesting to your point of Biden, when he made this announcement said, this is not, this is, these are not offensive weapons. This is not an offensive threat to Russia, right? Like he's trying to lower the, the temperature here, but like if you're looking at it from Moscow and I do appreciate Ricky that you have consistently made me try to view it from that perspective. Like they're, they're looking at it as like, you are, you are arming like our enemies and like putting, you know, essentially involving yourself in this war in ways that you weren't before when, like you said, when you're doing like missile defense systems, that's one thing, right? Like you're, I think even if you're Moscow, you're like, yeah, they're just kind of like allowing Ukraine to protect themselves. When you're giving them really as machines of war, you said that's different. And even they, Russia was far more uh, antagonistic in their language about Germany, where they likened it back to World War II and how the that the, the Nazis had historical like obligations, responsibilities, given all the damage that Germany had done to Russians in World War II. And they were like, now, seven days, decades later, you're essentially rolling out these same tanks against our people. And like that, that's, that's the kind of stuff, like even I'm like getting like these chills, even talking about it. It's like, that's the kind of stuff that, that seems like very dangerous. And it's like, you know, I love the slippery slope, but like when we talk about Iraq or Vietnam or like these like long quagmires, the United States has gotten in, it's not it hasn't been like, all right, we're going to go do it like all at once. It's been like little by little, we keep you know moving the line. And of course, once Ukraine got the tanks, the next thing they asked for, we need fourth generation F-16 fighter jets. And it's going to be no, 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 until it's yes. Until it's yes. All while 
as yeah, ballooning our military deficit, uh, ballooning our military budget while our deficit continues to go through. The- it all connects, Ricky. I used to say it to my students all the time. It all connects. Well, I don't know. Here's here's hoping that that cooler heads will prevail somewhere between now and after disaster. And in, in all, all of these situations, but, but this may be like, yeah, and this might be like first and foremost, but all right, Rick, good to have you back for people that have missed us. We appreciate you listening as always. We should be back on a normal schedule and um, hopefully to crank out just weekly episodes going forward, but welcome back, Ricky. I missed you. Thank you, sir. Good to be back. We'll see you. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share Opinions we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The value of sometimes being wrong Some mornings you away Some morning let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideals Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and change the lion's head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. Oh, what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made over arguments 
and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. 